Well, I'd like to begin today by talking to you about the issue of being judgmental with others. I know, super exciting topic. Uh, Everywhere we look, judgment is being passed upon people. And as a Christian pastor, I am aware that our culture uh, around Christians, we're often perceived as being judgmental. And it's impossible to turn on the TV and it's impossible to scroll through social media on your phone without watching people complain about Christians and how Christians treat others in our culture. And if we are honest with ourselves, the church can be judgmental. And recently, a research research firm called Gray Matter Research and Consulting, they studied evangelical Christians across the country and they revealed some common perceptions about them. And here's a quote from that research. Uh, It says, evangelicals were called illiterate, greedy, psychos, racist, stupid, narrow-minded, bigoted, idiots, fanatics, nutcases, screaming loons, uh, delusional, simpletons, pompous, morons, I uh, couldn't even, more, the moron up here couldn't even say moron. Uh, cruel, nitwits, and freaks. And that's just a partial list. Some people don't have any idea what evangelicals actually are or what they believe. They just know that they can't stand evangelicals. Now, some of the adjectives that I just read to describe uh, Christians are stereotypes. And in my experience, there's just some people in this world that will sip the haterade and they will hate on Christians regardless of whatever, without any good reason. It's like they heard something, they repeat it, and they're sort of like a talking parrot. However, in some cases, uh, there's a lot of truth behind uh, these uh, common perceptions about uh, Christians. And there's a lot of truth behind these stereotypes. Self-righteousness. The idea that there's uh, basically means that I'm a good guy based on what I do. Uh, that's a real issue for people of faith. However, the interesting thing about being self-righteous and judgmental is that it's not just limited to Christians. This is something that our entire culture sort of deals with. It's not just Christians who are judgmental. Think about your life and the people you interact with. Judgmentalism Criticism happens everywhere, uh, which leads me to my next point. Not only is the church very sometimes judgmental, but our culture can be overly critical. We live in a culture of criticism. Take business, for example. Uh, today, businesses rise and fall based on the opinions, customer reviews, uh, tweets, or status updates of any given person anywhere. And it's amazing how a uninformed 35-year-old man just sitting in his basement chain-smoking cigs can just crank out a review for Amazon and have a huge disproportionate impact on that product. And he's just sitting in the basement and he's just typing and he's yelling at his mom, you know, mom, you know, make the meatloaf, mom, I've got to finish this review, mom, make the meatloaf. You can, you can imagine this. And so there's a disproportionate impact that people have uh, on, on business. Uh, today, everyone is a critic. There was a time where we valued the opinions of experts. They were, they were the critics of our culture. They needed credibility in a given field. But today, everyone is a critic. Long ago, uh, that's what used to happen. We vow, now today, we value uh, our own opinions above everybody else's. We view ourselves as the definitive source and the definitive authority on 
subjects as diverse and complicated as international business to the fundraising capabilities of the head of the PTA to the haircut of a famous celebrity you know better than they do about what their hair should look like or even the preaching abilities of a young pastor in Santa Monica. Uh, And now I believe there's a place for criticism. We need to have cultural critics. But when the default posture of the culture is criticism, the result is an overly critical culture. You understand what I'm saying here? All right. Well, not only can the church be overly critical, but culture tends to shame those with whom we disagree. Uh, Shame. Public shaming. It's a real thing. Now, recently, David Brooks, he's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. He wrote an incredibly insightful article, and uh, he, he, say, he says that since we live in 24-7 social media world, we have created a new sort of shame culture. Uh, we shame those with whom we disagree, and we put them on blast in public, basically. And so, you know, today, shame, it's the new way to destroy somebody. It's how, it's how we do it. And in the article, he talks about the difference between the guilt culture and shame culture. Now, in a guilt culture, you know you're good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, whether it honors you or whether it excludes you. Uh, In a guilt culture, sometimes people feel that they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel that they are bad. Now, the shame culture defines who is in and who is out of a given circle. And so Brooks writes this. He says, In the modern shame culture, it allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree and to those who don't fit in. Ouch. And just take a second and reflect with me on our culture. This type of shaming of inclusion and exclusion, uh, especially the exclusion kind, it happens everywhere. We see it everywhere. We see it in our politics. We have Republicans who shame Democrats, and we have Democrats who shame Trump voters. And in our current political climate, it's so white hot right now. It's not even enough to just belong to a political party. You actually have to be a purist within that party. You must hold all of the same opinions as everybody else does, or else you are excluded, or else you're rejected from the group. Now, it not only happens in politics, we see it happening with parents and the way they interact with other parents. And if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you do not have children, consider this fair warning. Uh, You know, okay, you're a working mom. Okay, oh, you're a working mom. Okay, cool. How do you feel about uh, missing out on your kids growing up? Oh, oh, you're a a stay-at-home mom. What is it you say you do all day? And we, we kind of judge and we shame people according to their status as parents. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. You'll get a glimpse of it if you, ever, if you don't have kids and you want to have kids. We even see this in the way that we eat. Now, recently, our five-year-old daughter came home from school and we tried to give her a cookie. And she said, I shouldn't have these cookies because a girl in my class told me that if I had cookies, there's too many calories in them and I'm going to get fat. She's five years old. Now... That's a shame to me, you know, and she was, and, and it was kind of a weird conversation. And the interesting thing about the whole thing was like when she was talking with us, you could kind of hear a twinge of like, I need to figure this out with this person because there's some sort of exclusion associated with it if I eat these cookies. And she didn't cave to that, but like 
to say, I mean, we know that food is an issue in our culture. We know that shaming people around food and their weight is a thing. And it's happening at a, for people that are very, very young. And we know this gets more and more complicated the older and the older we get. There's fat shaming, there's food shaming, there's slut shaming, there's body shaming, there's faith shaming. Shaming happens everywhere. Everywhere we look, either people in the culture are lavishing praise or they're policing and condemning people through the power of shame. And we see this every day. Like I said before, we can destroy other people with our speech. We can distance ourselves from people uh, rather than opening up and being a friend. We, sometimes we are kind to people's faces uh, and then we criticize them behind their backs. Maybe we've seen people who keep a smile on their face throughout the meeting. And as soon as they get in the car, they call the person and they complain the whole way home. People can be vicious to other people who don't fit in. And as a culture, we are primed to erupt and ridicule anytime anybody stumbles ever. So now we've all experienced a judgmental person. And we all know what it's like to meet a judgmental person, and we know what it feels like to be judged. And over the past month and a half, Pacific City Church has been doing a new series, or a series we've been calling The Good Life. And I believe that an integral part of the good life is dealing with this idea of judgment in our culture. Uh, When we fail to address the own judgmentalism in our own lives... We set ourselves up to have problems with our relationships. It can affect every single one of our relationships. It can affect how we relate to our roommates, to our social circles. It can affect dating. It can affect our marriage. Uh, It can even uh, affect how we interact with people like customer service reps from Spectrum Cable. It affects every area (laughs) of our lives. So I believe Jesus offers us a different way to relate uh, between judgment by offering mercy. By thinking differently about other people based on what God has done for us. So I've called today's talk a life of mercy. I believe it is integral to understanding the good life, the life that should be lived or what we can experience in a full life. So I'm going to pray and invite God's presence and then we're going to take a look at a Bible verse. So will you pray with me? Uh, God, we know that you're here and that you want to do good things. And God, I just ask that... um, you would, you would help us to know you're with us. We'd begin to feel your presence work in the room. And God, I ask that you would help uh, lead me uh, to speak as I should, help lead me to say things maybe I wasn't expecting to say. And God, I ask for those of us that have experienced shame and unnecessary criticism and judgment in our lives, God, I ask that you would begin uh, in our hearts and our minds and in our feelings that you would begin to do something new, that you would release us, from that, the things that hold us. Uh, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read a story from the life of Jesus. And uh, it's found in John chapter 8. You can follow along on your Bible or on the app on your phone or on the screen. I'm going to break it up, the story up into chunks. So I'm just going to read a little bit, talk a little bit about it, read a little bit more, talk about it. So here it goes. Here's the story. We read about this in John chapter 8. And it says, Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the religious, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. 
they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, said, uh, they said to, said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Okay, pause. Okay, in this story, we see that Jesus is really popular and a bunch of people are following him. He is the man with the plan. And everyone wants to be around him. And the, and the religious leaders and the Pharisees are threatened by the amount of attention and power he's getting. So they devise this plan by accusing this woman and throwing her up in front of a crowd. And he, they're trying to trap him into not condemning her. Uh, often Jesus had a reputation of not condemning people who were on the outs. And he would often show them mercy in a very interesting way. Oh, and by the way, it's really interesting that they only bring out the woman for committing adultery. And I don't know if you've uh, ever gone to sex ed class, but it takes two to tango. So we're actually missing somebody in this process. So, but this woman was caught in adultery. We don't know where the guy was. So like already the, like you should be noticing that. Like it should be two people up there at least, right? But they're throwing the woman up there. Easy target. You know, there's a number of reasons. I mean, she could have been a prostitute. She, you know, they could have uh, set her up in some sort of entrapment. But that's very suspicious. So already the writer of this text wants us to see that this is kind of like a weird situation here. All right. Did you pick that up? Okay, great. All right. So the story goes on. We read in verse 7. It says, they, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And in an ama- so what, we, what do we see here? And in an amazingly wise way, Jesus outsmarts the Pharisees. He says, let the person who has never sinned, they get to pick up the rock and they get to stone her. They're the ones who get to do it first. You get to throw the first stone. Who wants the honor of throwing the first stone? Oh, it's the person who has never sinned. Let's just, let's just do that. All right, we'll all get stoned. Let's all do this. Oh, wait, no one's ever sinned, not sinned. No one's qualified. And you know what? If no one else is qualified to do that, but here, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm not going to condemn you either. Look what he says. Now look at the end of the story. It says in John 8 verses 10, it says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them try to condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. So in this amazing moment, we see that Jesus does not condemn the woman But he also doesn't excuse her from some sort of sin, but he frees her from the condemnation of her culture. In an amazingly powerful way, he outwits and outsmarts all the smartest religious law people, and he sets this woman free. She got to live another day because of what Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? Now, I get two things from this story. The first is, Jesus has power to forgive sins. And the second thing I get is that Jesus has the power to break the power of shame. Okay, first, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. What does that mean? What is sin? What are we talking about here? Well, sin is something that affects everybody 
even if we don't believe in God. Now, there's a Christian philosopher, his name is Soren Kierkegaard. He defines sin as building your identity on anything other than God. Now, even if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about God, or you think you know everything about God and you're more of an expert than me, God bless your heart, you know, that's so good that you're an expert. Even if you don't believe in God or you do believe in God, you may want to listen to this because people build their identities around who they are and what they value, they build them on something or someone. And if you're here today and that's in like, I just, I just want to talk a little bit. For example, people build their identities uh, on the, on their value or their success uh, and how successful they are in business and their career or their jobs. People build their identity to their child and their child's achievements. Does the child make them look good as a parent Uh, People build their identities on their beauty, Uh, looking good, staying fit, appearing desirable. Or people even build their sense of identity on a romantic relationship uh, around the love and the opinions of another human being. So sin just isn't doing bad stuff, according to Kierkegaard. Sin is something deeper. It reveals in our hearts the thing that we love the most. And so, hear what I'm saying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a successful business person. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. And there's really nothing wrong with being a great parent and having a great child. Instead, sin is something that is turned into an ultimate thing that if we were to lose that thing, life wouldn't be worth living anymore. Life would lose its meaning. In other words, sin is misdirected loves. Let me explain what this means. Whenever we have misdirected loves, whenever we build our identity on anything that's apart from God, we set ourselves up for disappointment because we have replaced our need for God and we have filled it with the things that were created by God. And so uh, I'll give you an example. When a mom builds her entire identity around being a mother and she raises the child, she feeds the child, she connects with the child, and maybe she connects her success in life as a parent with the success of the child, if she begins to live vicariously through the child's life, if that child, for any reason, ceases to be what she wants the child to be, if the child suddenly passes away, if the child rebels, if the child grows up and drifts away from the mother, her identity being built around the child, if that's what's happening, she'll be crushed. She'll be destroyed by that because her identity was built around the thing that she loved. Her life no longer has meaning. And that is the power of sin. The power of sin is not something that's just terrible. It's a love that's misdirected and too much emphasis is put on it. Or does that make sense? Okay, let me give you one more example. Like the same thing could happen to somebody who builds their identity around their beauty. Okay, if a beautiful person... Uh, built her life around her beauty and being loved and being adored. What happens if she's no longer beautiful? What happens if the inevitability of aging and sagging and all the things that come with getting older happen to you the same way they've happened to literally every other human being that's ever lived? What if the realities of aging happen to you and people no longer perceive you as beautiful the way they used to or the way you always hoped they would? What will that do to you? It'll destroy you. So the woman caught in adultery, uh, we see, we see that she has misdirected loves on some level. 
We see that her world is built around like the love, the romantic love of a partner and problems with romantic relationships, probably with men. And Jesus says to her, I see you and I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the reason he was able to do that is because of something he would do later in his life. Later in his life, Jesus would be hung on a cross, which was a Roman torture device, and he would be tortured and unlawfully executed on behalf of people who had misdirected loves, misdirected sins. And he would prove that he had the power over those sins when he would rise from the dead three days later. And friend, the central point of Jesus's life wasn't to make sure you and I have really great like belief systems. The central good news of Jesus isn't that we have a bunch of rules that we get to follow. And the central part of Jesus' message was not that we have a vision about how to be nice to other people. Although we do get a great vision about how to be nice to other people. That wasn't the central point of the life of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that he broke the power of sin in our world and that he is victorious over all. And we no longer have to be stuck with the misdirected passions and loves that demand our love and attention. We no longer have to create false identities uh, around our work or around our beauty or around our relationships. Instead, we can put our hope and our identity in the person who will never fail, the one who conquered the cross and the grave, and we can live in freedom, the freedom that only Jesus can bring. Amen? The good news of Jesus changes everything about sin because our identities aren't formed around the things that will ultimately fail us. It changes how we work. We become healthier and we become kinder employees. It changes how we raise children. We no longer have to identify ourselves through the life of the child. We even changes how we think romantically. And it sets us up to be healthier people in relationships with others. We aren't anxious to find love but we, because we know we are already loved. And Jesus says to us, he says, turn your life towards me Look towards me, welcome me in, I will come into your life. I have a vision for your life and a vision for your future that is so big and so grand and so exciting. You don't need to chase after the things you've been chasing after. I've got you. And so that's uh, how Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Uh, So that's the end of point one. Point number two is this. Jesus has the power... To break the power of shame. And you know shame is a powerful thing. Some of you have experienced shame in your life. That was put there by other people. Maybe it was put there by a parent. Or a sibling. Or a group of people at your elementary school. At the thing. At the lunch table or whatever. Or maybe there's just some central event in your past. Where you just feel so ashamed. Some of you have been called fat. Some of you have been called ugly. Some of you have been called stupid. Or lazy. Or good for nothing. Some of you have been called bad people. And some of you have experienced that exclusion. You grew up with a sibling that was favored over you. You tried to build a a relationship with a group of people. Only to be shut out. Perhaps you experienced something in your career. That was a setback where they excluded you from something. And that 
was wrong. Do you hear me? I, I think that God speaks today, and I believe that he's here today and right now, and I believe that he would say to each of you, that was wrong. The shame that you experienced that was put on you was wrong. The exclusion you experienced was wrong. It was wrong. And friend, let me ask you a personal question. Have you been able to experience the freedom that only Jesus can bring when he speaks to your heart, when he speaks to your mind, when he speaks to other people through the church, when he says to you, I see you, I know you, I love you, and I'm offering you a way out from this shame. Have you experienced his touch? Have you experienced the freedom from shame that only he can bring? Now, here's two things that I know about God. There's no amount, what, first thing is this, there's no amount of social shame or criticism that you've experienced that God can't supernaturally break in your life. And there's nothing that you've experienced that is insurmountable to God. He has the ability and the desire uh, to free you from the terrible things that have happened to you and the shame that keeps you from living the good life. And here's the second thing I know. There's nothing that you have done for which you feel ashamed that can keep you from the love of God. There's nothing that can keep you from having a loving and warm relationship with God. You know, uh, people come and they say to me, uh, this happens, you know, Pastor Chris, uh, I understand that God welcomes me uh, or welcomes people to have a relationship with him. uh, But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've experienced. And in fact, if you knew what I know about my past, you would know that God wouldn't welcome me in. And I get it. I get it. Shame is real. It's a real thing. But let me tell you this. Shame may be the story of your past, but it doesn't have to be the story of your present. And shame may have had an effect on your present circumstances, but it doesn't have to have an effect on your future possibilities. And shame may be a powerful force, but we serve a more powerful God. Nothing you have done or experienced in terms of shame can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Your shady business dealings from the past can't separate you from the love of God. Your sexual history and your regrets can't separate you from the love of God. Your track record... You know what a track record is? Like multiple times in a row, like it's proven. Your track record of being a really mean person can't keep you from the love of God. Your temper and your blow-ups on your spouse can't keep you from the love of God. Your battle with addictions can't keep you from the love of God. And certainly all the times you've shamed or overly criticized people can keep you from the love of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And what I'm... Go ahead. We can be involved. We can be involved. We can be involved. Yeah. Yeah, we can clap, you know, and when you're clapping, you're not really clapping for me. You're clapping for, why are we clapping? Anyway, you're clapping to celebrate (laughs) the idea of like, yeah, that is true. And so uh, eventually where this church is going to go is going to be like, we're going to like be more involved. So, uh, but you know, today that was good enough. That's a good start. So if I say anything else, you know, you don't have to be like, am I allowed to clap? And then there's the person who does one clap. Most of the time, did you know I start the clapping during the, during the worship songs? I'm like, and then everyone else said, so you don't have to wait for me or the person. You can be like, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and okay, so end of disclaimer, we're going to have to cut that from the podcast. Okay, cool. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is this. When you ask God to take away the shame and judgment you've experienced, like only his spirit can do, 
You're asking him to practically, supernaturally work in your heart and work in your mind to give you a new perspective that you would have never come up with on your own. Uh, You're free. You become free. You aren't held back. You don't need to make decisions just based on what he or she said. You become more of who you were meant to be and your future becomes brighter because you don't have to live every day with that background noise of shame and judgment. You are loved. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And you don't have to, you don't have to be uh, uh, caught and held back by that. Now, here's the deal. Now, I want to tie this back into the idea of shame and judgment in our culture. Now, I believe that life with Jesus isn't just a belief system. Life with Jesus is meant to be experienced. And so when we experience the power and the freedom that comes uh, from living in a life of shame and judgment from our past, we are primed to pay that forward, baby. We are primed to do something new. When we experience personal freedom from judgment, we become dispensers of mercy. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. When we experience personal freedom from judgment and criticism, we become personal dispensers of mercy. When we have been forgiven, we become people who forgive difficult people in our lives. When we feel no longer controlled by the critical opinions of others, we no longer have to feel compelled to be overly critical with other people in our lives. When we no longer feel, uh, when we experience the love of God, we no longer need to socially exclude others. We are free to build healthy relationships, especially with people with whom we disagree. We don't have to be defined by who we agree and disagree with. We can cross the line. We can cross the aisle and say, I don't agree with you on everything, but I love you. And let's figure out a way to be friends. That's what our world needs. We don't need more purists. We need more people crossing the boundaries of even though we might not agree with each other. We're willing to cross the boundary and say, I'm willing to be your friend Tell me about your story. I may not understand everything, but let's go get coffee. That is what our city needs. That is what our world needs. And the theory goes like this. If Jesus followers can experience that freedom from shame, it'll change our culture. We, uh, we are free to not have to judge others. We don't have to judge whether someone's in or out. We're free to not be the judge, jury, and executioner of people's social destiny. We're free. We're free because we have the love and patience that's been given to us by God. Now, I want to say a quick message to the church, and that's this. uh, And this is why this is important for the world. If the world can see the church helping people instead of judging people. If the world can begin to see the church having hope for people. Instead of being cynical towards people, if the world can see the church trying to understand the perspectives of people that we don't agree with instead of shaming and shutting people out, the world just might take notice. They might say, wow, in a culture so full of judgment, in a culture so full of shame and criticism, these Christians in this church, in this school, they're so graceful. They're so kind. When I'm around them, I don't feel judgment. I feel freedom. 
And they might say to us, you know, I might not believe everything those Christians believe. I might not believe that Jesus died and came back to life. That's kind of wacky. But you know what? I do respect how they treat people. And I think that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be incredible if the reputation of Jesus was so inspired, so big and so good that it inspired people who were outside the walls of this church? And I think that's what it starts. That's how it starts. We don't need us leaving this room and being more preachy, judging people's behaviors, what they're doing. Oh, this isn't right. Oh, that's good behavior. Thumbs up. What we need are people, a people of God who are willing to take personal responsibility for our own behavior as committed Christians. And if we claim to follow Jesus, we had better follow his example so that when we, when we do, we begin to look at people the way Jesus looks at people. We value them and we say things. We, we do something that's so radical, so countercultural, so life-giving that will actually influence our culture so that they begin to value people in a way that they weren't valuing before. That's what I believe the church is called to do. Let's start with our own behavior and let's say, God, if you've done something in me, I am now free to give that thing away and value people. I don't have to judge others. I am free because of the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, that is an essential part of the good life. A heart in each of us that values others because we have been valued by Jesus. Amen?